The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. I think what nobody told me about a memoir is you can't hide behind actors or directors or, <laughs> or even that much makeup. But also, it's still live. You know, it's my life and it's still live. And so I can write the ending for Hannah and Nathan and be, you know, cheered and in awe of the actors. But I go home and have my life, and this is my life. Now, today's guest knows a bit about drama. She creates it for a living, after all. Abby Morgan is the BAFTA and Emmy Award-winning screenwriter of films like Suffragette, Shame and The Iron Lady. And she's creator of the impossibly brilliant BBC drama The Split, which has been gripping viewers recently with its third and sadly final season. But all the screenwriting expertise in the world could not have prepared her for the series of cataclysmic events that shattered her life three years ago. Now she's written a book about those events. This is not a pity memoir, it's funny, moving and thought-provoking. It's a love story, but not as you know it. Abby Morgan, welcome to Mad World. Thank you so much. I love the name. I feel like anything could happen with a, with a podcast well, name can. like that. I know. Well, it's, 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 you know, it's quite dated now, five years. I'm oh, really? like, can we still call it Mad World? Will I we get told off using the word mad? Yes, I know. Always tricky, isn't it? So the first question I asked each guest, yes. I ask each guest is, how are you really right now? I'm slightly over-caffeinated. Don't have a Coke Zero on top of a couple of coffees. I'm a little bit wired. How am I? I'm pretty, I walked into a window last night, so I've got a bruise on my nose. Maybe I did have one or two glasses of wine. <laughs> well, um, you were celebrating. We were celebrating. It was the last episode of the final season of The Split. So we had a little bit of a celebration, myself and the producers and Maybe a couple of actors. Okay. And, uh, and yes, all three of us managed to walk into a, a glass door, just not noticing it. It was quite comedy. <laughs> and it really is. We were just talking about this before, but I want you to say this like on the podcast. Obviously, it's been hugely successful, mm. the split, but you were adamant it's three seasons. Mm. Do you see the way I kind of went, mm, yes. Uh, it's really lovely to hear people say that, I think, because you don't, you know, there's so much great TV now, you never really believe it. But yes, it was always, always, always conceived. The split was always conceived of the idea of a woman looking at the legacy of her split uh, from her, her own parents and then facing her own split. So I always devised it as three series. And it, I mean, look, we've got amazing fans and amazing constellation of actors and production teams. So it's really hard, but I feel like it's the right thing to do. I feel like it's the last season and I'm going to stick to my word on that. However, a <laughs> couple of glasses of wine in, you might be saying, oh, well, maybe we could. What about if we... So I think we're still in the what if, but I, I'm trying to stick to my guns about it. I, I, I think, uh, you know, it's a bit like you have to cut the shoots down to get the tree growing again. And I think it's probably quite healthy to do that. So, but who knows? Never say never. But at the moment, I'm sticking with the three. Okay, let's see if we can persuade her by the end of the podcast. <laughs> um, so this is not a pity memoir. Mm. The actual last word of the last sentence of the book, you, you thank Justine and Ruth Piketty. Mm for their writing. Mm. For people that don't know, it was Ruth died of cancer. cancer very, very young and she did a series of columns in The Observer, didn't uh, yes, she? Yes, absolutely. That you, at the beginning of your career, were going to try an option and turn into a... Well, a, in a way, it was a bit of a chat-up line because I, I first met Jake, and I talk about it in the book, but I first met Jake at a dinner party and I was circling Ruth Piketty's brilliant book Before I Say Goodbye, which is a kind of collection of her columns that she did for The Observer and I think it's got some emails in about her sort of facing the last few months of her, her, her life and it's very witty and very moving and very relatable and I really fell in love with it and uh, 
And so, I, you know, when I met Jake 20 years ago, I was, I was trying to get, get the rights for this book and it was one of the first conversations we had. I wanted to make a film. I never got the rights for that book, but I actually ended up adapting Justine Piketty, who's Ruth's sister's mm. book, which is called Another Memoir. She wrote following Ruth's death about her kind of journey to try and reconnect with Ruth in the spirit world, really, and mm-hmm. how do you how do you deal with the loss of someone when your actual relationship isn't over? And so I did I did adapt that into a film script, and I just was I I love that writing, and I love the kind of you know writing that you do. I love when people talk about their own experiences, and I think it's bold and brave. And as a kind of screenwriter, it's often where drama is found. And there was something very familiar. I think they were North London sisters and though I didn't grow up in London one of my mother's best friends lived in North London so we used to come up here and I'm very close to my sister and so I it was just very moving and beautiful and I often think you know when people are when you're faced with these the ultimate deadline which as writers we're always dealing with deadlines but mortality is the ultimate deadline sometimes perhaps your best work comes out and I always felt with Ruth's writing it was just gripping the way she could talk about ER and her love of ER and then Mm. profound things about the legacy that she might leave behind for her children, and that collision is very moving. And and Justine's Piccadilly. I mean, I've, what, I I love Justine's writing anyway, but it's exemplary and beautiful, and and was amazing material to write a film. And in fact, it's a weirdly, it's a film script I've just come back to after probably ten years, and I'm now thinking I'm really going to try and get that film made. Well, inspired by them, you say there is no pity memoir, Mm. only words on pages. And if they mean something to someone, they're worth being said. Mm. And that really moved me. But the story of what happened to Mm. you, Abby, still is happening to you. Mm. And still, you know, life is much stranger than fiction. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, I think if you're any, if you're an artist, if you're a sculptor, if you're an actor, you know, if, if when you were hit with real things and it probably is expressed somewhere in your art. I've never considered myself an artist, but I know that I know the tools of writing your way out of chaos. And I think I use my writing to find form. So what happened for me is the collapse of my partner of nearly 18 years Um, on June the 18th, 2018, and I came home to find he'd collapsed from a brain seizure and so ensued the kind of trigger for sort of nearly three and a half years' worth of chaos and drama and tragedy and plot twists and, you know, uh, extraordinary people who became characters in my my mind and the way I kept my sanity was, was to write about it. Jacob was in hospital for 443 days and he was um, in a coma for just under seven months and then subsequently went through a long period of rehabilitation and then eventually came home. But one of the key elements to the, there was, you know, was dealing with all of that, but also the key element was when Jacob woke up in the January 2019, the one person he, he didn't know anymore was me. Right. And he just developed this very rare delusion, Capra delusion, which, you know, you'll have read about, which is the belief that somebody or something close to you is an imposter. And he was absolutely resolute to the point that, you know, one neuropsychiatrist described it as a like a religious conversion. Um, I mean, it's I feel like there's there's so many elements yeah. of what happened to you. You know, I, I kind of want to go back to the beginning of this particular yeah. story, which is that you find him collapsed. So he had been unwell for some time, hadn't he? Yeah, I'm well, I mean, he had he in 2011, he was um, diagnosed with multiple cirrhosis. But he was very high functioning. He was in relapsing, remitting period. And for the last four years had been on this kind of wonder drug trial for MS. And so he was in, it was in the last phase of this trial. And in the March before um, Jacob collapsed, the drug was voluntarily withdrawn. 
and the trial was stopped because 12 people at that time had collapsed on it with various forms of um, brain inflammation. And so in the June, Jacob had just come off this drug and I remember standing in the kitchen and him saying, oh, you know, it's really weird. They've, they've stopped the drug. Apparently some people have been getting, you know, becoming unwell on it. And we slightly dismissed it because he felt okay and he seemed okay. But actually now, in the few weeks before he collapsed, it became apparent that actually all the symptoms he was, he was experiencing, you know, which was sort of strange rashes and low-level fevers and exhaustions and, you know, sort of symptoms of kind of bad cold but something other, mm. were just actually a symptom of someone who's reacting to a drug. And so the, the consensus now is that Jake is a, another casualty of that drug and that actually he collapsed as a result of it um, following the withdrawal of it. So he collapsed and he is taken to hospital yeah. and you have that period of not knowing what's wrong yeah. with him and they're saying that there's nothing wrong with his brain on the scans. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I mean, one of the first things, so it's, it's, his brain's still there, it's okay, he's still got a brain. And so that was a, that was a relief. And in fact, you know, having had these, he had a, he had a series of tonic-clonic seizures which are kind of grand miles, you know, and they can last between three and five minutes and five minutes it's a kind of medical emergency and Jake obviously had hit that. So he had these seizures and then actually when we arrived at the hospital and we got, you know, he'd gone through being calmed down and, you know, um, being seen by a consultant and having an MRI, he was sort of talking and kind of couldn't quite believe what he'd gone through. And I reminded him that he'd sworn at everybody and he'd been really kind of animalistic and he was just so shocked and apologetic and just wanted to go and say sorry to everyone. And so we were like, oh, it's okay, it's bad. He's probably got some kind of infection. I mean... We've got a house in Italy. It's mm. it was it's Jake's baby. He sort of built it. He's loved it. He, we'd all been there very recently, so for a while it was thought maybe he'd picked up an infection from a tick. But actually, as the two weeks unfolded, as they did more and more assessments and everything was coming back clear, Jake's was really unraveling. I mean, he was cognitively, physically, and mentally unraveling. And so, towards the end of that week, as they put him into a coma at the start of July they finally realised actually he had developed something called anti-NMDA receptor encephalitis, um, which is a really rare form of brain inflammation. And it's well known probably or better known as brain on fire. Okay. And so he developed brain on fire and his body just couldn't take what was happening to him. So they, he was put in an induced, medically induced coma whilst they tried to kind of bring down the inflammation, stop the seizuring. And so... He was sort of seizuring on and off for six months as they just tried different methods and, and in the intensive care unit in a coma. And so during that time, um, you know, I, I, I had a lot of time to think and reflect, I guess. You talk in the book about um, the industry of comas and how mm. uh, in the movie, in the movie, oh, you know, yeah. and I love, you know, the whole way through what runs through this book is, is this whole thing of, you know, the narratives we have and the like the neat yeah. beginnings, middles and ends and how everything should be. And yeah. then, you know, life throws these curveballs at us. But you say in movies, you know, comas are not like they are in the movies. No, I really like the fact you picked up on that because one of the things that is, you know, I wrote this uh, during Jake's rehabilitation from home, but actually I wrote it all the time I was experiencing it like a movie because that was my natural default. Mm. And I was also writing drama, you know. I was, yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, you know, I was working on the second series of The Split. So it was just my natural oeuvre. So... The experience, what was surprised me was that, of course, there were moments of brilliant drama that felt absolutely ripe. And then there were other things that totally surprised me. So when you're on a medic, we were on Michi, which is a medical intensive treatment unit, which is a very tiny ward, five, six. It's very intimate. There's a very qu quiet but steady turnover. Some people make it up to rehab and some people don't survive. And so it's it's a very intense but, but weirdly tender place. That's the only way I can describe it because everybody is really, you know, you're, you're seeing mothers and 
and and and daughters and you know boyfriends and you know grandparents dealing with the unthinkable everybody on the ward had some kind of traumatic brain or acquired brain injury of some kind and um whilst you're there what i didn't realize was that there is this continual kind of workforce of nurses and porters and cleaners and readers and and visitors and and uh, consultants and it's just this constant metronome and the peeps and the whooshes and the you know the, the 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 sounds and actually one of the things that I've developed now is I have problems with certain sounds that's that's my biggest residue and I really? think it comes from that period where um, you know the suctioning I can't deal with I mean I find it even difficult saying it but there's there's a lot of suctioning of somebody because as well you know you're trying to keep someone physically moving you you can't let their bodies atrophy mm. and so they need to be fed and they need to be changed and they need to be physically moved and you know watching Jake for six months this is going to make me cry I'm so sorry I'm so sorry you, don't, you could cry <laughs> it's, there's, no, there's no better place to have a cry we cry a lot on this podcast I'm sorry it's so hard and I also feel like you know you write things and then you're expected to just retell the story again yeah. and, you know and like it's not it's yeah. not a deeply personal well, it's still, I think I think what I think what nobody told me about a memoir or certainly writing a book anyway is you can't hide behind actors or directors or, <laughs> or even that much makeup um but also it's still live, you know, it's my life and it's still live. And so I can write the ending for Hannah and Nathan and be, you know, and, 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 and be cheered and awe of the actors. But I go home and have my life and this is my life. So, but actually one of the things about, and I think I, the reason why I cry actually is not just myself, but, um, you know, you're, you're, you're colliding with five or six all the time people's lives, you know, so you've got, you know, I don't want to mention names because I don't, but you know, I do mention a few people. But you know, you, there was a young man there who'd collapsed. He worked at a bar. He just had a cold one day and he collapsed. And he was in, you know, a, a sort of deep, paralyzed state. And his mother had come over and was looking after him and was living in the flat with his flatmates and caring for him. And with that beautiful young girl, you know, who just got a stomachache and has still not recovered. You know, or a, a, you know, a guy, I, you know, who's who's had such a loving family an Indian man who had such a loving family who were always around and always caring for him. And you knew this man would never be the same again. And so it's a very tender place. But it's also when someone is sleeping, the mm. kind of notion of a sleeping beauty, Jake's beard still grew. You know, I suddenly discovered that his eyebrows got bushier. And so, you know, this is where this kind of incredible network of people start to come through. So a really good friend who hadn't been in touch with for a while, I got talking to him and he said, oh, my friend's a barber around the corner. I'll send him in for you. So... You know, this brilliant guy who, you know, Huckle Barber on Lamb Conduit Street. I will forever be grateful to Gavin. He used to come in and just, like, trim his beard or do trim his nails. And then, so you have that layer, and then you have the nurses who are just incredible. And, you know, we've just seen, obviously, how extraordinary the NHS is. Mm. You know, we've all clapped on our, our front doorsteps. But, you know, I realised they were heroes for a long, long time, and having gone through that, they are just holistically not only looking after that person, but they're looking after you as a family. So, you know, you know, this is place my kids had to come and do their homework there. Mm. You know, I I wrote scripts in the room. You know, my we did shifts with our family. You know, his family were Jake's family were amazing. They were constantly. You know, we played music to him. My son worked out how to. He found a speaker in the ceiling that we could play music to Jake, and that was a revelation, you know. And we were constantly doing battle with the nurses because we'd come in and there'd be some really weird music and we'd be trying <laughs> to constantly change it. So you're trying to kind of bring life into 
into a space and it and 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 it's a strange experience because you give over the most beautiful you know most important person in your life you give them over to people and they don't know you mm-hmm. and you know they they're the ones who come up to you at the end of the day and they touch your back and they say go home we've got him you know and that's what i think moves me is it is i i've i've written the book but actually we are here he is here because of those people and mm-hmm. so i still am very connected and in fact you know we we this is the book launch week and so this is the week when we're reconnecting with the therapists and the consultants and uh, you know I, i've got a couple of friends who are coming who i met on that ward you know who are still dealing with their own issues so it was you know it's it, it, it's i've gone really off piece here but anyway the point is it, it, it a coma is a very active state emotionally and physically it's an extraordinary it, it's a very extraordinary experience and you know actually it's quite an interesting state to try and capture on film because we normally rush through that bit and wait for the moment when they wake up because that's the bit that's really mm. you know but actually there's there's a quiet level of drama and it it was at times enraging terrifying moving joyful you know we told him my son got his GCSE results he passed his driving lesson my daughter would sing to him we had christmas in there with him you know so it, yeah, it's, I haven't talked about that. Actually, I haven't actually talked about this till today. So that's probably why I'm quite emotional about it because well, I don't think I've thought about it since writing the book and I haven't talked about it. There's so much in that book, you know, like just one of the things that happened would be enough, mm. wouldn't it, to kind of, for a lifetime really, mm. to have to deal to deal with, you know, th- that unbearable uncertainty mm. of, of for nearly seven months of mm. not knowing... Mm. you know how how he's doing from one day mm. to another or or not being able to reach him mm. very very much so and i guess you know it's, i found i had jake's phone um and i think that's that's where i sort of started to play detective first i tried to find out if he'd experienced symptoms i found a list of symptoms that he'd experienced but the other thing is i was able to track down he you know he's an actor mm-hmm. and even pre covid you know the, there was a lot of taping and I found some taping he'd done of some auditions, you know, to send off. And I found them on his phone. So I used to look over them. And then I had two or three bits of really important footage for me that still and was I held on to. Um, one of which was a, the gifting of a ukulele became really, it was 40, I think it's 43 seconds or whatever it is, or 45 seconds. And um, I used to watch it over and over again at night. It gave me huge comfort. And even when he came back, it gave me huge comfort so yeah I, I I think it's um I couldn't reach him but I found other ways to reach him and even being in the house you know he he's designed we, we laugh because every floor has been funded by another film I've written <laughs> and every every time we got a film we used to be like great we can do the kitchen oh my gosh we can do the loft oh my god we can paint them so actually each floor so we've got like the suffragette wing and we've got the iron lady you know bedroom and you know various parts of the house but even that you know we've got the orange bench which I was very unsure about and he went it's going to work and that bench was really important to me so I realised that actually Jake even though Jake wasn't there he was there very much I could find little details of him and then I had his family and then more than anything I had my his children yeah. I feel like I could ask you questions about this for hours and hours yeah, and no, hours no, but, but let's move on honestly no 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 you know like there's, no, no, there's do, so honest- much to go into but then the the really heartbreaking stuff was still to come mm. in a way. Mm. Yeah, he I doesn't recognise you. Yes. What's that phrase? That phrase which is, you only get what you can bear or something. The, you, the world doesn't give you 
More than you can handle. More than you can handle, yeah. Yeah, that great phrase, the world doesn't give you more than you can handle. Well, you know, we all know that there are times when we just want to throw it all up and we can't yeah. handle it. And I think, weirdly, the way everything, the, the dramas that were staggered, I guess the big thing, yeah, were, was that when, so Jake woke up in, I say six, seven months, the reason why I hover around that is that when you're in a medically induced coma, there's a lot of trying to bring you out and put you, putting you down. So we tried to, you know, we, <laughs> the doctors tried to bring him out at several points and it became apparent he, he, he just couldn't, he was still seizuring. So they would put him back under, but between sort of um, beginning and end of January, they started to realise he was going to wait. And when he did wake, it then started to happen very rapidly. So Jake woke up and very quickly, once they'd removed his tracheotomy, he, he did develop his his speech was extraordinary, although it was very gravelly and different. He was able to talk, but he was clearly different. He was slow. He couldn't. He was spending a lot of time looking. We built up to the speaking, and over that first month, I think we were all, um, you know, we just didn't think he was going to live. And so, <laughs> this is going to be such a bad. Podcast. I want to so leave I across the table. So sorry, but anyway, I know, but it's so ridiculous. I've been really good today. I'm sorry. It's but, not ridiculous. <sighs> on, please, like, yeah, no, I'm not, I would not. You know, it's really, what's ridiculous is I wouldn't. If someone else was doing this, I'd be like, of course, I love. You know, I want you to be this. Do this. You know, it's not a bad. I suppose what I'm saying. Don't. don't if anyone's listened to this, it's strength. That what what can you lose by being broken? I'm. You know, I'm, I suppose what I'm exposing to is I'm still quite broken by. Mm-hmm. Even though I can resolve it, there are parts of me that will always be a bit broken by it. But anyway, it gets better, fans, because um, when Jake woke, so we had this first month and it was we were all kind of a bit giddy, but kind of where is he going to be? And, you know, I remember this very dour consultant, anaesthetist, standing by me with a very sort of deep Scottish accent, which I'm not going to do because I'll probably offend everybody <laughs> in Scotland if I do. But basically saying to me, he's he's going to be very different. You're going to be, you, oh, that was it. When he was asleep, he said, you know, he looks like... Jacob, you think it's distressing now, but when he wakes up, you know, he's going to be a very different person. And so I was quite, I started to go, okay, he's going to be a really different person. And the surprise was when he was there, when he smiled, he looked like him. When he, But there was just a look in his eyes, particularly when he looked at me, that he was very different. And I've got a bit of footage where we videoed him first time we took him out in the square and we've got a few members of family there and the delight that everybody's going, the dog's there, he meets the dog for the first time, he's in a wheelchair and he's just silent but delighted to see the dog and delighted to see his brother and his niece, his niece and his nephew and his father. But every time I'm holding the camera and I'm talking to him like he's three, so that's the first thing that makes me absolutely cringe. (laughs) But the second thing is every time he looks at the camera, you can see his, his irritation and I thought, this is odd, he's not, he's grumpy, he's waking up, he's coming out of hibernation. But there were just one or two things, you know, friends would arrive and he'd say, thanks very much, could you go outside, please? And I think this was a bit strange. And then the the big thing was Valentine's Day and I bought him an unbelievably cheesy red balloon. You know, it was one, you know, we're, we were pretty brutal and bold with each other, Jacob and I. So some some years we wanted to celebrate it and other years it might be, you know, occasional kind of nod to each other across the breakfast table. <laughs> but it was one of those years where I thought, no, I'm going to bring him a balloon. And I got there and the nurse, a nurse I didn't know, she was... I'd not seen her before, but she was very excited because she said, your wife's here, your wife's here. And she was trying to get him to give me a red cellophane wrapped rose. And he just looked at me and went, that's not my wife. And I just in that moment, I mean, A, I thought, yeah, he's kind of right because we weren't married at that point. So I thought, well, maybe he means girlfriend. (laughs) Maybe it's that. You get desperate. But I shook and I, I remember shaking and I think I'm, I mean, everyone says three days, but it felt for days I shook. And I kept on saying, can you feel the underground? I can feel the underground. Can you? 
just something didn't feel I was really shaken and then I sort of started to get magnetized to probing him more and it it slowly started to transpire that actually he'd sort of slipped up a few times and asked other people if who I was and at first people couldn't believe it my close family couldn't believe it I don't think Jake's family could believe it but then it became much bolder and and, and I started to record a little bit you know our conversations most of it is is you know my knee or my foot because I never wanted him to think he was being recorded but it, it, it was very quickly apparent that he had woken up with this rare delusion, Capra, which I mentioned earlier, which is the belief that you're an imposter or someone close to you an imposter. And it, for some reason it was focused on me. Um, and so began what was a year of him not, not recognising me or refusing to believe it was me. And did the doctors say to you that there was any, you know, there was any hope of... If it being resolved feels like completely the wrong word. Yeah, I think. Well, well, I think moving from um, as brilliant as rehab was, moving from the kind of tender care of Mitchu, the, the the intensive care unit, to rehab is a very different experience. You know, it wasn't quite the four seasons. You know, so mm. they've. You know, you're you're re, you're acutely aware of how brilliant and how stretched everybody is, and so Jake's neuropsychiatrist there. I think they had they hadn't actually seen Capgra in the context. I, I know hadn't seen it at that hospital, or certainly this neuropsychiatrist hadn't seen it, but they hadn't seen it in relation to acquired brain injury, which is actually something I didn't say in the book. But what is quite funny is that's ABI, isn't it? It's an Abbey he had. So I've never thought about that. But anyway, he's he's got an acquired brain injury, and so I think they were just hopeful that originally they were like, well, look, you know, this is this this is unusual. But they very quickly read up on on it and they developed this thing called theory A, theory B, theory. And the idea was we should never challenge Jake's theory outside of theory A, mm. theory B. So theory A was, you know, Jake, you're right, absolutely not Abby Morgan. But theory B is we can never be 100% sure of anything. There's always 1% where, you know, something it could be wrong. Could you Can you deal with 1%? And maybe in that 1%, can you get your head around in that 1% this could be? Abby Morgan, as you call her, because I, I was Abby versus Abby Morgan. Even that sounds bonkers when I say it. Um, and Jake just never could. And so then you then Google like crazy and you talk to whoever you can. And, and from my research and having spoken then to subsequent um, consultants, neuroconsultants, the feeling was if it hadn't passed in three, three, three and a half months, it was really weirdly specific. The expectation was it wouldn't, it wouldn't leave. So, you know, we obviously went quite Pass. quickly through the first three and a half months and it was still very much there. But then my relationship started to evolve with Jake and I I never, I would think I was so indignant and furious and insulted. I felt like this kind of jealous girlfriend <laughs> abstract who was like, you know, you fucker. I'm, I was very, I was rageful. I mean, I was raging. You know, my sister had to listen to me raging quite a lot. And I remember actually calling my sister on as I drove home going, I really don't think he knows who I am. And I think you were the first going, that can't be true because it was such a cliche. And that's the other thing, you know, it's, um, it was such a bad plot twist. I was like, this I, is, how's this going to work in a film? Well, how's you, it going to work, you know? You, I wrote down that you, you talk about during this time going back to work on the split mm. and how sort of manic you oh, feel. I was, and, I, was, I, was, I was embarrassingly manic. And, you're, and, you, and, you, and I'm sure everyone understood and you wrote, my day job is to create characters. 
But this this is different. The role I have written, that I have created, that I have performed my whole life is now being challenged. I'm a bad actor, the wrong actor in someone else's parts. Mm, mm. Yeah, and I and 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 there is I definitely think I was bonkers. Well, I've got more bonkers, but I definitely think I was feeling pretty. And I like that word bonkers. I'm sorry if it's on PC, but, but I think it's a good word. But isn't also bonkers the most, almost the most sane response to that yeah. kind of situation? Mm. It's an appropriate response to what's happened to you. Well, actually, even the kind of saying of the word, it it it, it somehow released also to see the madness and also the craziness. And, and, and as a result, that's, I think, where the humour came from. Mm. But... I, I mean, I, you know, you come up when, when you start to promote a book, you start to obviously interrogate and you give out your answers. And, and I keep circling this. And I think one of the things was Jake was physically there. And one of the memories I had of Jake, even if he didn't recognize me, I physically knew his body. I'd watched his body for six months, but mm. also I knew his body. So I think that kept me going in terms of even if he didn't know me, I still felt this connection to him. I still felt this warmth for him. And although I was angry with him at times and... You know, I, and I felt like I was constantly feeding parking meters. That's one of the biggest memories as well because there's nowhere to park in London and you, you're trying to drop off kids. And so I was constantly going out and trying to find the number for a parking meter. And, you know, I can't tell you how many parking tickets I got through that time. So I'd often come in in a bad mood from a mm-hmm. parking ticket or not being able to find anywhere to park or, you know, getting all the way there and realizing you'd left your daughter's netball kit in the bag and had to go back. So I was often that day-to-day rage was there of living, you know, the domestic living. So when Jake would come in and say, well, you're not who you say you are, I would think, but I've just driven all this way to see you and yeah. I've just taken our child. So you do, you do go a little bit mad and you certainly talk to everyone. I mean, I am so grateful that Gail's no longer has the barista who I used to regularly, <laughs> like regularly, because he was the nicest one there, like give him updates. And the poor guy, A, didn't speak much English and B, I think genuinely just didn't entirely know who I was. And when I came back, which is the next thing that happened to me, I looked very different a few months later. I thought he's never going to recognise me and he just went, the lady who talks a lot. And I went, yeah, it's me. Did he give you free coffee? He, and I used to get free croissants all the time. That was the good thing. And actually, you know, when you go through tragedy, people are very, very nice to you. So you touched on it there because, I mean, mm. listen, that's not the end of the story either, you know. No, and I guess this is what's embedded in the title because... There are two emotions I find very, very difficult to handle. One is embarrassment. I can't watch people being embarrassed and I hate the feeling of being embarrassed. But I think I need to get over that because I think we should all be embarrassed sometimes in life. And the second thing is pity. Mm. But actually, if I interrogated both of those, pity is just humanity for someone, is feeling for someone, isn't it? So so I tell this to you because I am sort of embarrassed about the kind of... Because each one I know people have gone through and is... I don't want to underestimate or make it into another light and another bit of the punchline. But mm. yeah, I mean, the bottom line was that um, Jake was in hospital until he started to come out a little bit over the summer of 2019 and he came up properly in September 2019. But just as he was coming out of his coma to go into rehab, which is about April, I started to develop this feeling like someone had punched me in my in the chest like I had this pain in my left breast but it felt like it went deep into my chest and I was like what it must be my seatbelt rubbing and then I was like god I've eaten I've drunk so much coffee and I'm drinking I'm drinking so much diet coke and eating so much chocolate I'm just not looking after myself but uh, a director I work with Sarah who's just looked at me one day and said you should just get it checked out and I will forever be grateful for it because I would have left it and so I went to see an oncologist um sorry a breast surgeon 
to be examined. And I remember he examined me and barely touched my breast and went, yep, let's get you downstairs. <laughs> and when and, I, and my sister said, should I come with you? And I went, no, no, I'll be in an hour. It won't take me any time. And so I went downstairs and by the time I'd come back up, having had a sort of minor procedure to sort of check, he said, you know, we're going to send this, these off, but I can tell you now I'm 99% sure you've got breast cancer. And I had um, a stage three, grade three, triple negative cancer, which is, it's not genetic. It's just one of those random cancers you get, unfortunately, quite aggressive. And, um, quite rare as well. Was it? It's rare. And I had, yeah, I had a, a, a tumour the size of a lemon in my left breast. And so that pumping, I realised quite quickly, that's what it, you know, we've, we've realised what that's what it was. So then... I then had to sort of, yeah, I, I, I was faced with that. And actually the second time when I got my results, I went in with my brother and sister. And, you know, again, that's where you really lean in. And I literally lean in. I, you know, I leant into my younger brother, who's always felt like my older brother, and my sister was just, like, brilliant. And so, yeah, I was reeling. But again, I was like, oh, my God, this is... I, I talk about it, but I've always loved the kick of drama. Mm-hmm. I've always, you know, I love coming and going, the cat died or, <laughs> you know... The gerbil, we left them in the, in the you know. Have you heard? Have you heard? I used to love, you know, I loved, I almost relish people hearing bad news and it's mm. a horrible, horrible thing because I'm almost like, it's the kick. So it's a very weird thing. I was sort of slightly battling, knowing people would go, oh, and maybe a tiny part of me was sort of, I guess it's attention, isn't it? But it mainly felt like I'd just run a marathon and now someone was saying, we're just going to strap a large piece of white furniture like a refrigerator on your back and we'd like you to run it again. And it was like... <laughs> and then I think the thing that was really, really hard was telling my kids. So, mm-hmm. And that's where it's it's just the most painful thing because well, you're one parent down, so the thought you might be two parents down. But to this day, I am so grateful because that consultant that day said, this is going to be a massive inconvenience, mm-hmm. but we're going to get you better. And my oncologist was just extraordinary, and they just went, "We're going to make, we're going to do this." They were just people give you strength when you don't have any because they see you don't have it. So I was so depleted, and manic, and bonkers, and telling everybody everything, um, and it was all funny, you know. I mean, my consultant was brilliant, but he had he had I think he he had snakeskin cowboy boots on in a suit. You know, there were these kind of weird distractions would be constantly kind of I would find things that were funny or distracting the whole time and they kept me sane, I guess. And and they have and they have dealt with it. They have, they got- have. so I went through I went through twenty four weeks of chemotherapy and then I had a mastectomy and then I had a month of radiotherapy. And so I kind of came through it by start of March twenty twenty. And then COVID hit us. And all of this, <laughs> that little sting in the tail. But all of this while while Jacob was yeah coming out of a coma, not recognizing you. Your children are doing exams. Doing, well, my son had just done his. Was just my yeah. My son was just going into his first year of A levels, and my daughter was going into her first year of GCSEs. I think that's right. Yeah. And you have a huge job. Yeah, and I have yeah, I do. And but actually, all of those things are also what absolutely saved me. So my huge job with my amazing, amazing team of people from... You know, I was working on The Split. I was, We were shooting the second series of The Split as I had my chemo. And, you know, I remember going on set and having to tell my producers, going, I'm really sorry. I know you've spent the last sort of nine months dealing with me lying on the sofa of a boardroom and feeding me Haribos and, you know, waiting as I took the call to find out if Jake was going to live or not and then coming into a script meeting. But it's now <laughs> cranked up a bit, which I've got cancer. 
And they were just absolutely amazing. So, you know, any script changes, they came to my house, they sat on the end of a sofa at the end of my bed, they edited with me there. And and I just had this incredible team and this machine that was 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 already running. So I'd done the bulk of the work through them. So that was amazing. Then it was family and my kids who, when I think they, they you know, pick themselves up from the reeling of like, okay, we've got another parent down. Um I think they did and we did everything we could just to keep life going mm. and keep the joy going and, you know, just try and enjoy everything. And I I think the dark moments were obviously late at night where I'd think, God, am I not going to make it through? And then I would worry, how how are we going to afford Jacob? How, you know, if Jake's going to need 24-hour care, I can't leave these kids with with that. And... And then it was so, and then I'd wake up in the morning going, "That's not going to happen." Mm. I'm going to just keep going. I'm going to keep going. And I kept on, you know, I became obsessed googling. I would, I would look at blogs. I would look at people who were going through cancer. I'd, I'd read extraordinary stories of people living with cancer. So I thought, even if it gets the worst, and I was lucky, it was stage three. Although I had lymph nodes, I hadn't gone into my lymph nodes, and I just had really, really good care. But interestingly, the one element, the the element I found most hard about my cancer treatment was the radiotherapy, and it was and the MRI scans, and it was the peeping and the clinks and the machinery. Weirdly, the radiotherapy, you sit there for 10 minutes and you're blasted, but actually amazing people around you, everyone's being lovely, but that's the thing I struggled with the most. But yeah, I am, I so I'm now two years clear. Oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. You know, you. but that's the other thing. You talk about just getting on and getting through it, and then there were moments that were... You know, it's like that sublime to the ridiculous. Mm. Mm. Those those little like you know, there are signs if you look for them everywhere. Do you remember, like oh, you're, all you're... the time. And I and I and also everybody gives you a sign. You know, one of the things that was um, uh, amazing was that I was forty nine when Jake collapsed, and I was turning fifty that September, and Jake was in a coma, and. My kids found on Jake's computer a list of 50 things he wanted to do in my 50th year for me. And so they started to implement them. And one of them was we love Jake and I both spent a gap year in Florence. And so, you know, with the aid of my credit card, the kids and I went to Florence and we spent really three amazing days, but funny days. And, you know, you're trying to run away from the pain of everything. But actually, you know, there is joy to be found in ice cream and there is joy to be found in, you know, swimming in a cold, sunny afternoon in Italy and making pasta and just being with these kids and just being in this place and again actually being somewhere that Jake absolutely loves was really and I you know we'd been together with the kids a few times and we've got a house in Italy so Italy was a big connection so we did joy you know we found the joy and we found signs so I went to see this amazing sound therapist who was really really wonderful but had a very very different way of thinking about life but you know she talked about look out for signs and one of the things she said is you know bumblebees look out for bees they're really good they're you know they mean empowerment and it, even today I had one the other week where I was just feeling very low about something and I came out and I've it's happened about three times now there is always a bumblebee on my front doorstep and I take this as a good sign and I don't know you know I'm not you know I, I think everyone says as the counterpoint you're not a religious person I'm I'm a spiritual person mm. but I would say there's a kind of I'm I talk about this hum and I can't describe it but like when you are low maybe it's the shake of the shock that I talk about but there's this hum, and it's it's just not just the hum of love I felt for Jake, but it's the hum I got from other people. Mm. Um, and I think the brokenness you feel it in other people. I hit feel it all over the place now, and that's you're right. You know, not to be embarrassed of the tears because actually from the brokenness is is the rebirth. You know, and 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 there is a kind of yeah, there's a kind of joy to be found even in the worst moments. So there was a joy. The you know, 
a, a friend of a friend that was relayed back to me said, you know, it's wonderful you can fall in love again. You know, he doesn't know you, but you can fall in love again. And I just wanted to punch them. And, you know, I was really brutal. And I was like, well, A, I'm not going to fall in love with an out-of-a-work actor for once again. And B, you know, if I have my time again. Yeah, if I have my time. But actually, there's one memory I have of, you know, I, Jake didn't recognise me, so it forced me to kind of court him again, you know. And I courted him. And I apologised to Jacob through a lot of cake, which we then had to, re- re- you know, address later on. But I remember once taking him out for a cream tea and we ended up in this tiny, very pretty little tea shop, but right on Southampton Row, which is the busiest, noisiest road and grimy, cars, cars, cars. And watching Jake pile cream onto the smallest scone you've ever seen and shove it in his mouth and look at me and smile. And I say, you know, and say, so you enjoying yourself? And he goes, I love this. And realising he was loving this moment together, even though he didn't know who I was was just kind of joyful actually and and he started to move from I was working from the state and helping him look after the state to I he started to refer to me as his friend and I said are you okay when he when I was bringing him home I said how do you feel about coming home with me I said because am I uh, am I your partner he went no I said well how do you feel about coming home he said but you're my friend so I feel okay I'll come home so that was something else that was a big part that I had to draw on our friendship. And he, you know, he's he's a really special person. He's very annoying <laughs> and um, stubborn and selfish and beautiful, like really beautiful and warm and funny, 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 funny. And although he was like underwater, I talk about that for a long time, you would just feel these ripples back. You know, it might be a smile, it might be a look, it might be a joke, it might be a... And the other thing is when I told him I had cancer and then the various stages of my treatment, I could see how much it pained him mm-hmm. and he couldn't understand why. And that was almost more painful to me, you know. So, yeah, I guess it's just... It, yeah, I guess um, that was the, the... You know, you talk about the joys that you can find and the gifts and the fun and Love Island... Mm. Who knew that I would have such a great summer of Love Island? <laughs> Never to be repeated. Actually, I tried to repeat it, but it, it, it take. You know, I loved Love Island when I had a husband in a coma, and it just didn't have quite the same ring for me Off the following year. But it was a great. It was a great. It was a heady summer with Love Island, which I did love. But you, you know, you moved back towards each other. Mm. Like when was the? You know, because there sort of is a moment in the book, but where he yeah holds my hand. Yeah, yeah. This, uh, so my my kids were now. They were 14 and 16, and now they were 16 and 18. And um, we had a birthday party. And again, I used to do these very... I mean, I described myself as a kind of, I don't know, manic redcoat at Butlins or something. And I think in a way I was. I was sort of crazily trying to keep the fun up. But it was their birthday. It was their 16th, 18th birthday. And I really, really felt this profound need of... Like, I wanted them to celebrate because I was always kind of trying to chase their childhood. I was, trying to, I was trying to give them, I wanted them to have all the joys that they should have. Not realising they didn't give a shit about that. It was me <laughs> that just basically wanted the party. So we long-winded way of saying, I organised this party. I arrived at this rather smart restaurant in Mayfair that I realised when I got there that Jake and I had spent a really weird evening there together and I didn't realise it was the same restaurant. So already I was feeling sick. It was going to be disastrous. But actually it was just our friends and, and families, small group. And our kids and people made lovely speeches. And Jake sat there just watching it all, taking it in. And again, very silent, still very silent at that time. So that was January, February 2020. And he suddenly leant forward 
when the kids were like blowing out the candles, whatever it was, it was a moment of joy, shared joy. And he gripped my hand and he went, well done, babe. And babe was the word he'd always used for me. And one of the things that Jake kind of carried on these low-level seizures when he came back. And so he would close his eyes and he would be drinking, he'd be grasping something. But at night, he was so coherent. So you could hear him in bed. He might have been silent all day. But at night, you could hear him going, hey, babe, it's okay, I'll drive. No, 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 do it later. All right, babe. Night, babe. Yeah, babe. And he was talking to me in his sleep, but he never, ever would call me babe in the day. So he called me babe. And that was where I thought, oh, okay, something's moving. And it would, then it ebbed and flowed and went in and out. But then I think that where he started to just turn was in about February, March. There was a photo popped up on his iPad of me and him. And I was like, it's me, look, yeah. look. And by the, you know, I, then I used to, you know, I, I talk about it, but I used to pinch him. I used to, like he'd, fill his bowl with cornflakes and turn around to get some milk and I'd slide it across the top of the table just to try and get him to notice me or just play or engage with me and try and get the game back that we used to have. And he was just ignoring it and a bit embarrassed for me and then I, as I turned around he went, yes, I'm starting to think there's similarities. And that was really where it changed. And then I could see he's just, he's done the thing and I don't know, he he would, if he, if he was here he'd probably go, that's not true, but actually... He kind of has done the very thing I, I, I was rejected, which I think he has kind of fallen in love again with us, with me, with what we are. And that's helped him place and regain and kind of recalibrate. And it's just been a kind of process of him accepting me back more and more as, 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 as time has gone on, really. There's something about it which is, it's like, there's a line that you, I can't remember where in the book, but you say the problem is there's only one word for love. Mm. And I really felt reading it that it was, although, you know, what's happened to you, and I'm mm. so sorry it's happened to mm. you, has it's, it's been kind mm. of extreme and traumatic. Mm. But reading it and reading the sto mm. your story, and I, it felt to me like a sort of, it summed up the sort of the perfect imperfection of marriage mm. and mm. long-term relationships mm. and families and... Mm. You know, we take people, the, the bad, the good, mm, mm. you know, and love, love is, love isn't the kind of whirlwind romantic feeling. It's the sitting there with your, with your partner when he's telling you that you're not who you are mm, and he's, mm. you know, and he's been in a coma for seven months mm. and, mm. and sticking through it. Yeah. And I, it is, and it, but love is also selfish mm. and love, I, you know, it's also that self-love or that love of myself because my own mortality was also threatened at that time. And so, uh, you know, that definitely there is only one for, word for love, but actually, uh, you know, one of the things I'd realised about it is I'd packed away a lot of myself. In a long-term relationship, you do do that. You know, you do, you adapt and you change and you form. And so when Jake kind of dropped away from that, or I dropped away from Jake's life, I was sort of standing on my own, my, my, on my own with a sort of, Jake-shaped hole, and I did have to go. Okay, well, what if I if I have to stand without him, but next to him, how do I build my life? So I think I have started to really build my life in parallel with Jake, and at the same time kept that kept the shape of him there in the hope that he'd come back into it. But my life is still going forward, so I guess that that helped me. But also, it is about imperfections, and you know, one I was on Desert Island Discs. Um, I think only a few months before he collapsed. I might be, it might have been the year before. I've slightly blurred my timeline, but Jake and I both really love Stephen Sondheim, mm -hmm. and um, 
I was trying to debate which of the songs I was going to choose for us and there's one that's called Being Alive, which I chose, which is beautiful, which is about how, you know, you want to be with someone, but how frustrating it is. And that's at the core of a lot of sometimes lyrics. But the other song that really stayed with me, which I was going to choose, was Sorry Grateful. And it says you're always sorry, you're always grateful. And that's what I think about relationships is that those two things can be true. You can always have moments where you think, well, if I hadn't married you, I would have been a great star, you know, or... <laughs> But then you also think, God, I'm so grateful I am with you. I'm so grateful. So I think those two things can live side by side. I think the danger is when you don't acknowledge those two things or you deny those two things. Mm. Um, and I guess that Jake and I live somewhere between the two of those places we always have. That feels like the perfect place to leave it, yeah. actually. Sorry, grateful. Thank you so much oh, for coming thanks on. Thanks for having me on. It's so nice. Thanks so much. Thanks for letting me cry. Before you go, please follow Mad World on your podcast app to make sure you never miss an episode. And if you feel like it, leave us a rating and a review. I love to read what you think about the shows and also see your guest suggestions. Mad World is all about helping our listeners and I love hearing from you. The Telegraph also let me loose in column form. So if you'd like to hear even more from me, head to telegraph.co.uk forward slash madworld and you can get your first 30 days access to the website completely free. If you've been affected by anything we've talked about in our podcast today, the following organisations offer free and confidential support over the phone. The Samaritans can be reached 24 hours a day, seven days a week on 116123. Or you can contact the mental health charity Mind for advice on a range of mental health issues. Their phone number is 0300 123 That's 0300 123 They're accessible 9am to 5pm, Monday to Friday, excluding bank holidays. There's also Young Minds who provide support if you're a parent or a carer worried about a child's welfare. They're on 0808 802 5544. That's 0808 802 5544. If you prefer tech support, Shout is a 24-7 UK crisis tech service available for times when people feel they need immediate support. By texting Shout to 85258, you will be put in touch with a trained crisis volunteer who will chat to you via text. And importantly, please remember this. You are not alone.